Markets Conversation is an ION podcast where we discuss topics of importance to capital markets participants with product owners, subject matter experts, and industry leaders. What I did, I only let, don't let myself worry at three in the morning about something I didn't worry about at three in the afternoon. I've been using OneNote over the last year, and it really allows you to be what I would describe as much more agile in terms of you know ability to collaborate, you know, add visual pictures. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Markets Conversation. I'm Ali Curry. On today's episode, we'll discuss the types of post-trade improvements in technology since the COVID pandemic. The COVID pandemic greatly affected and disrupted every industry in the world. And since technology drives most of the world's financial transactions, these technologies were put to the test in order to keep businesses running and expanding. This expansion of digital trade exposed significant technology shortcomings, from outdated infrastructure to fragmented risk systems and the challenge of incorporating new asset classes like cryptocurrency into aging legacy systems. We'll impact these issues, but also we'll discuss how firms can overcome these digital trade challenges in the post-COVID world. Our guests today are Bruce Roberts from the Markets Division at ION and Will Mitting, CEO of Acuity, a management intelligence platform. Let's get started. Hi, Bruce Roberts. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Ali. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to see you back and ready to discuss some new topics. Will Mitting, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ali. Great to be here. Well, before we get to our conversation, I want to point out, Will and Bruce, you both have worked uh, with each other in a client-vendor uh, situation. Bruce, can you share more about your working relationship with Will and Acuity? Yes. So I've had the privilege to work with Will and his uh, global Acuity team in marketing and raising awareness in the futures industry to some of the challenges facing sell-side clearing uh, members and then working together collectively to how some of these challenges can be tackled. Great. And also, Bruce, for those who may have not listened to our podcast where you were our guest, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at ION? Sure. So I'm part of the Global Clear Derivatives Leadership Team here. Um, my job uh, focuses really working closely with clients to help them solve uh, their technology and business challenges. So this involves you know, regulatory compliance, efficiency, delivering new services, and then spending time with our people, our strategy, and how we execute on our delivery. Great. What's one exciting aspect of your job, something that, that you really enjoy doing? So I really get excited speaking to our clients um, and helping our clients achieve success. So, you know, when they win, we win. And it can be you know, from simple challenges to a new request that they have or a technology implementation that allows them to transform other business model. But, you know, get a lot of energy working directly with our clients. Thank you for sharing. Now, let's learn a little bit more about Will. Mr. Meeting, thanks again for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your career and what led you to where you are today. Thanks, Ali. So my background is in business-to-business uh, -business publishing. So I began life in what were trade magazines and thought this is a relatively easy life. I could do this for 30 years or 40 years before I retire. And obviously the bottom fell out of the magazine market and it became a lot more workload with delivery over the internet and, and online publishing. The job role changed, um, but I jotted around. I worked at uh, various large publishing houses. I spent 18 months living in Malawi where I built um, a magazine business there as well. And then in 2019, I left uh, Euro Money, which is where I was previously and 
and launch Acuity. Will, what is it that you find most exciting about the job that you're doing now at Acuity? Bruce has taken the um, making clients happy line, so I have to think of something else. I think <laughs> so. So probably for me, I think we obviously, uh, as I mentioned, we launched in 2019. Suboptimal time to launch a, a startup in hindsight. So I guess through all the challenges we've been through, I think one of the most exciting things is looking where we were a year ago and how far we've come. Because on a daily basis, it doesn't feel like you're making progress. It's only when you look up and look back where you were previously that you realize that actually you are making progress. So that's probably the most exciting thing, aside from making clients happy. That's number two. Well, thank you for sharing, Will. Let's talk about technology and finance, specifically during pre- and during COVID. So I'm going to set this up a little bit. Gentlemen, given your experience from a client and solution provider side of these issues, I think it would be very useful to hear opposing perspectives and we'll also explore how proposed solutions benefit both sides. Let's start with issues and challenges exposed during COVID. In markets, the FCMs, Future Commissions Merchants, saw their back office processing come under significant pressure obviously causing a lot of disruption across the market. Bruce, let's start with your take on what specifically was causing these process disruptions. And Will, please share your take on these issues during the pandemic as well. Clearly, volatility at any point um, is, you know, a challenge to manage in terms of, you know, daily processing and risk. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the, the start of COVID with, you know, people, you know, being sent home again, you know, the ability to work online and, you know, new ways of working weren't fully bedded in. So, you know, setting that aside and the complications around it in, you know, high volatility, you know, periods, a lot of big FCMs and, you know, the, even the smaller bespoke ones have a lot of complex bespoke processes that, you know, they manage. And, you know, part of the challenges that they've also found is within their front to back, fragmentation and you know because of you know lack of connectivity in some instances but also some of the customization you know that they perform for clients around averaging and allocations make it extremely challenging you know in periods of sustained high volatility and i think the final was really looking at you know kind of data referencing so when you look at you know executing broker clearing broker you know references or codes along with other uh, data, you know, that feeds into the overall day-to-day uh, -day process. You know, when you're trying to manage, you know, high volumes with, you know, a smaller staff, that is a recipe that creates a lot of challenges to stay on top of your risk and to be able to, you know, manage the daily clearing activities that an FCM has. I think that's right. I think it was a juxtaposition of um, high volumes with that relocation to remote working. But also there's a path dependency to where the industry was when COVID hit which had been a heavy investment in the, the front office where you know trades were executed or hundreds of thousands of trades executed in the blink of an eye, then processed and cleared into back office systems, which often still had green screen uh, GUIs, quite outdated technology. So I think the, the core processing was a problem, but also the way firms had, invested, had approached investment in post-trade was also an issue where people tended to patch uh, different technologies. They stitched different technologies together they patched problems rather than addressed underlying problems. And that worked fine in normal times. But when you had to then relocate that during unprecedented volumes with some of your technology based in the cloud, which obviously could be transitioned relatively easily, but others still hosted on, on premises, it all started to fall apart at the seams. And as Bruce says, there were serious problems with give ups and average pricing, which I think the industry has really focused on 
sorting and addressing over the last couple of years but also reference data is a key challenge as well right yeah absolutely completely agree with that and it's an interesting observation i think you make in terms of you know the investment in the front within execution and what we've seen over the last decade is a lot more high frequency or algorithmic trading which then of course has then driven the volumes higher with lower margin trades but that's put more pressure on the back office teams in terms of being able to support those with legacy technology that's not real time. And again, it doesn't create the transparency in the workflows to be able to manage through risk and exceptions. So, yeah, yeah I completely agree with that. I think there's a problem potentially that front office is seen as a profit center. And if you invest there, you clearly see results, you can execute quicker, you can get to deals faster. And the back office was a cost center. You've obviously worked in banks as well as at Iron. Is that, is that what you saw in your time when you were there? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, trying to put the business case forward for a cost reduction, you know, is a challenge, you know, for a lot of, you know, firms because, you know, it's much easier to look at growing the top line revenue and investing on new products and markets than it is to take on the risk of making a large transformational change in the back office and being successful with that. You know, I don't know if you see, you know, across, you know, some of the other, you know, members that you, you know, talk to, the number that are actually taking on that challenge to really, you know, re-engineer in the back office. Is that something that you see as more common or do you think it's still, you know, out there a ways away from a lot of firms? Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, March 2020 was a wake-up call. I think not just within firms, but across the market, people suddenly understood the risk that inefficient back-office setups had, intra-firm and across the market. We saw in 2020, we did a survey towards the end of 2020, where we saw post-trade rise right to the top of the list of investment priorities. And that's continuing um, now. I think there was a problem prior to, to that, that it was almost a risk that was too big for some firms to take. Obviously, it's a big investment to overhaul your back office to completely re-engineer it. So it's a big investment, but it's also a career risk because it can go wrong. There are horror stories from the past, certain banks that tried to do it, ultimately go back and start again. And so I think it changed the balance of risk. I think there was a perception that there was a real existing live risk in the back office that had been triggered. And that, for the first time, I think, overcame the, the career risk and also put to the top of the minds of senior executives the inefficiencies within their back office. But then I think the, the, the thought process changed as well to people started to see it more as a, an opportunity and as a USP. If you've got an efficient post-trade setup, if you've got STP from front to back, your, your client services is much better. You're, mu you're operating much more efficiently. You can reallocate headcount towards more higher value tasks and simply manually checking and processing trade breaks. So I think there's been an appreciation that it's not a cost center. It fits into that overall front office view of efficient trading. And it is front to back now. People see it as front to back rather than front office from middle and back office. And I think that's a really positive um, uh, development in the industry. Uh, it's really interesting to hear those observations. This episode is brought to you by ION. At ION, our clear derivative solutions automate your complete trade lifecycle and deliver actionable insights whenever and wherever you need them. We offer execution and order management, post-trade processing, and a complete front-to-back business solution. To learn more, visit us at iongroup.com markets or email us at markets at iongroup.com. If you think about where the industry has moved to kind of post trade um, since COVID, 
What, what do you see, or you know, from the data and the analysis and research that you, your firm's been doing, some of the kind of key trends and where you think that you know the investment is going to be made um, by some of these firms to try to really improve the front to back. The initial phase in the wake of 2020 was purely in, it was in predominant scalability, making sure that we're eliminating manual processes, still to some extent stitching together. Um, workflows, but doing it in a way that could handle higher volumes and was more cloud-based than it was previously. We did a study in the beginning of 2022 where we asked if firms felt they were more resilient today in terms of their back office processing than they were previously. We found 97% of respondents said they were, which you probably you would expect. Um, however, obviously, there was a there was a real life test that came in with the volatility around the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which led to even higher volumes than we saw back in um, March, uh, February, March 2020, with the initial outbreak of COVID. And certainly, our perception and our, our information that we get from from our surveys, from ex- from interviewing and surveying senior clearing executives, is that the process is withheld much better. I think over 80% said their back office processing and those of the industry perform better. Even more said that give up the give up process, which obviously was a major challenge, major challenge back in um, 2020. Also, a lot of the issues there were addressed and that's backed up by data from the FIA, which showed that point as well. There are still issues, there are still areas to address. Even, even today, we found that only around a third of firms achieve uh, 98% or more on an average day of straight through processing of all trades. So that still means that even for the top third of firms, still 2% of trades require some kind of manual intervention. When volumes increase, that problem scales up um, as well. So I think there has been a lot of progress, um, a lot of investment. We're on our way. The issue is changing to one of looking across the market and trying to understand how the industry can solve across industry issues, things like, again, back to reference data, things like average pricing methodologies, uh, these issues that are impacted when data has to be transmitted from firm to firm. I think that's the next scale and the next big challenge to occur. But in terms of your client base, you take up of XTP, of course, what else have you seen? Where have people been investing and how, I guess, how, what are the lowest, lower hanging fruit that people can pick at this stage? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to how it's changed. So a few years ago, it was really focused around reg, um, a big driver in terms of you know reporting and compliance. Now it's really looking at global efficiencies in terms of you know how you know can they gain synergies to drive changes in their overall business operating model to drive out cost, and to do that is to really move from you know more or less a T plus one, you know, kind of processing to T. And so on trade date. And, you know, that's where I think a lot of clients are trying to reposition themselves in making sure that they can manage, you know, one, their risk a lot better because the volatilities continue to be, you know, kind of pervading over the last few years and doesn't appear to be going away. So I mean, that's one of the big, you know, I think drivers when we talk to clients that they're really focused upon is that risk management, real time, moving their processes to T and then really, you know, focusing on that front to back efficiency and on that front to back efficiency within the average and allocations, I think there's an acknowledgement, you know, that the big buy side firms are going to continue to ask for a lot of customization and bespoke um, activity. But how can we do that in a way that's more um, robust and sustainable in high volume periods? And how do we want to really use our, you know, clearing technology to be able to automate a lot of that or as much as we possibly can? And you're probably never going to automate 100% of it. But, you know, if you can get to, you know, a high percentage and 
you know, STP's one percentage um, measure is a key metric. The other one is right first time, which I think is also key because, again, you you can have high STP, but if you're touching every, you know, trade to clear it, then, again, that takes a lot of effort and there's a lot of opportunity for getting it wrong. So, I mean, those are some of the types of things that we get clients asking of us and looking at in terms of where their focus is. I guess one of the other things we've seen with this, outbreak of volatility that's different from the last february 2020 that was just very high volume on certain days as markets dropped down what we're seeing now is cross asset volatility huge intraday swings across multiple different asset classes so you've got the derivatives component but you've also got your fx you've got your fixed income businesses as well all experiencing extremely high volumes and extremely high volatility are you seeing clients as a result of that look towards kind of a cross-asset view of risk or trying to centralize their processes, which, we, you know, we talk about the derivatives trade workflow being patched together over years with different technologies doing different processes. You multiply that exponentially when you go across asset class. So is that now a focus do you see for clients? I think it's becoming more prevalent for the risk managers within these firms to want to have that kind of overall counterparty or client view to exposure and concentration and what risk appetite they have. So, you know, they're doing it, you know, kind of downstream in a number of different areas to collectively pull that data together from different, you know, settlement platforms and also risk platforms. But the move to be able to do it more centrally is definitely there. It will be one of the areas that continues to be one of the big investment areas towards the future, I would believe. And a lot of that's driven by the collateral. And I think we've seen that in a number of different markets when you look at, you know, the metals and the energy markets and, you know, the collateral that's now being having to be posted on an intraday basis. You know, there's real risks for a lot of firms in terms of the clients that they're working with. So how do they better manage that risk is, I think, one of the kind of key drivers for them. And it's, you know, one, I think, you know, when I look at, you know, some of the industry conversations appears to be gaining a lot of spotlight or headline attention. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Actually, we found that, that this time around, the 2020 uh, versus 2020, uh, 2022 versus 2020 volatility, the CCP methodology and the margin calls were a bigger problem than they were back in 2020. And I guess if you look at what's happened over the last few weeks, that's going to be the case again. And we've seen the, you know, the, bank, the central bank bailing out the energy firms. We saw the issues on the LME with the nickel contract. So I think that's one of the issues that the industry needs to address. There are obviously process improvements that you can look at. The reference data, is, is as we talked about, is a key element of of improving that process, harmonizing reference data so people consume and give the same information so it can flip between machines. But I think there is a genuine philosophical problem almost with the concept of pro-cyclicality of margins. Now, whether that's solved by more initial margin from the outset across the board or higher default fund contributions or a volatility fund that is, that is tapped into but provided by banks that can be tapped into during periods of high volatility, I think that's, that still remains a central point of weakness. If you look what happened last week with the, the pension funds, the full details I don't think have come out on it yet, but one of the things that, was, that looked to be the case was those firms that were clearing were put under more stress than those that were still trading and margining bilaterally, which obviously, if you go back to 2008, was the whole point of this push towards clearing was in order to mitigate systemic risk. So if actually we've introduced an element of systemic risk, I think we need to appreciate that now and understand that now before it's too late. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and also, I think, you know, with some of the exchanges and clearing houses, when you see CME coming, you know, out with um, their span to and their approach to have more dynamic, again, uh, margining is a good example, I think, of the focus around risk, you know, within the clearing houses. And, you know, each one of them over the last several years have been coming out to try to, you know, modify the way, you know, they are calculating their risk. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve and how firms adopt to that to minimize, you know, you know, the volatility that we've been seeing, whether it be in most recently the pension funds and, you know, the treasuries uh, or gilts markets, or even, you know, metals and commodities, which we saw earlier in the year, you know, with the LME and with the nickel. So I think it's another good example. If we, I mean, maybe turn our, I guess, attention and, you know, talk about, you know, kind of the future of crypto and um, blockchains, you know, stable coins, you know, we saw some issues, you know, earlier in the year with them. Do you think they're going to be more widely, you know, from, you know, members that you're talking to, you know, areas that they move in to offer? to their clients and that they see as a potential, you know, kind of hedge against, you know, some of the other, you know, let's say traditional products and, you know, that investors have looked to move into? Yeah, I think so. I think to unpick, there's a couple of themes there. I think to answer your question directly, I think that we're already seeing the ambition of native crypto exchanges to trade in traditional markets, but to bring innovations to it. You know, FTX obviously is the the headline example of that, but we've got a project at the moment looking at this exact topic, and we've got the early results out suggest that around a third of exchanges that we've surveyed plan to enter traditional asset classes uh, in the next two years. So clearly, they see a significant opportunity, maybe as a hedge, but also to expand their their operations. But I think the DLT issue is probably more you know more deeper and more ingrained in terms of the innovation that will bring. The way the way I look at it is the if you look at the dot com boom. And really, the introduction of the internet into into the business world, I see it as a very similar. It's not a new thought, but it's a very similar process. With you had a boom of hype in two thousand and one, you had the crash, but then ten years later, the internet had changed more than could ever have been envisaged in two thousand and one. And I think that's a similar pattern we're going to see here. But the the, the pets dot com, the last minute dot coms, and a host of other companies that we haven't heard of today kind of the equivalent of unicorns back in the two the 99 2000s are almost the equivalent of the, of the digital assets today so the kind of bitcoin ethereum the coins but the underlying technology the internet is the blockchain and that i think we're only beginning to understand now the applications and the workflows that it's going to change and we're still in the process of replication we're still looking at faster horses but beginning, I think, to get a sense of how it will change, fundamentally change firms' roles in the market. Um, and that's probably a conversation for another day. But I think that's what's going to be fascinating is as that as blockchain becomes more in- ingrained, how does it change how we trade? If the internet was the ability to communicate with anyone globally, blockchain is the ability to trade with anyone globally. And I think potentially that's a bigger change than simply communication. I think your reference back to you know the dot com you know, at the turn of the century is really relevant because a lot of those firms I think you know were in their nascent stages and people trying to understand you know what were the uses of the internet and technology and some didn't make it but it then you know off the back of that you know we saw a number of firms that were very successful you know the Amazons as an example you know who you know became established market leaders and. You know, my guess would be is we're seeing the same thing in an embryonic market where, you know, these firms are going to play a number of different roles as, you know, exchanges, as clears, 
as brokers, potentially even as investment, you know, managers, you know, towards the future and the way, you know, the products evolve will probably be again, similar to the dot-com. We'll see some shakeout, you know, over periods of time um, to those that don't have the liquidity or, you know, the, the market um, share to be able to support it. So I think, you know, definitely on the product side and, and on the blockchain, it, you know, the use cases are what's really fascinating, I think, for it and where that, um, you know, takes the market towards, you know, again, you know, looking at just something as simple as settlement risk and how they mitigate, you know, kind of the settlement cycles or windows that are there today. Again, we'll see how that evolves, but we're having a number of, you know, conversations over it. We get clients asking us about it and what our perspectives are. So it's clearly, it's a hot topic. It's one that comes up on a regular basis. In my observation from the FIA, which has been great for them to help facilitate that and firms like yourself who've also, you know, trying to, you know, engage, um, you know, the community to, you know, how does it evolve? So, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a space that I think is, you know, one that's going to continue to develop towards the future. It's great to see innovation and competition in the derivatives market, in particular listed derivatives, notorious monopolies from exchanges who own the product. So yeah, I think it's an exciting time and I think there will inevitably be disruption. Um, It just, I have no idea where it will come from at this stage. And all the exchanges are starting to offer crypto products as well. I mean, CBOE, they've got five, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies that they're trading now, you know, CME. I mean, in fact, I just saw the other day that the CME are looking to also offer a similar crypto clearing model uh, that FTX proposed. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I think um, positioning in terms of people's strategy and trying to work out where they want to compete in this particular area. So, it's an exciting uh, area to, uh, to watch. Okay, gentlemen. Well, let's change topics for a minute. I know, Bruce, you've done the career questions before, but I have a, a few more, a new question for you. Uh, share with our listeners, what's your favorite productivity hack? I think the most recent one that I've been experimenting and using is OneNote for Windows. You know, most Firms, I would have said, are wed to kind of PowerPoint and constantly formatting and trying to communicate, you know, in this medium. You know, I've been using OneNote over the last year, and it really allows you to be what I would describe as much more agile in terms of, you know, ability to collaborate, you know, add visual pictures, other uh, notes, sharing ideas and capturing actions. And um, if you've not tried it, I'd give it, I'd give it a try. It's, um, I use it now all the time for meetings and, um, it's been highly effective. I'm seeing the benefits of it. Great. Well, thank you for sharing. And Will, for people who are interested in pursuing or developing their careers in research and operational analytics, what advice do you have for them? I would say if you know the field you want to go into, getting some experience doing the job you're covering is a massive advantage. It's something I, I never did, wish I had. Um, and it feels like if you don't do it, you're piecing together a picture, um, almost like a jigsaw, where as a good, you know, an internship actually doing the job can tell you more, more than you learn in a few years of trying to learn about it from the outside. But that said, if, especially if you work in the research for finance, usually a pay cut might, might, might have to be taken coming back. So maybe you never actually get into research if you, if you work in finance first. Well, that's great advice. Also, Will, what is your favorite productivity hack? Probably the best way, I think, is how to stop a lack of productivity. So I think you know, running a business, I think sleepless nights are the one thing that 
destroy your ability to be productive. So it's more, I guess, an anti-non-productivity hack. But what I did, I only don't let myself worry at three in the morning about something I didn't worry about at three in the afternoon. And so three in the afternoon, I think, what am I worried about? How can I take steps now to address it today? So I worry about it less. And then when you wake up at three in the morning and you think you're worried about something, you can reassure yourself that you weren't worried about it enough at three o'clock to actually address it. So it can wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I think that's some great advice and we'll leave it there. Bruce Roberts and Will Meeting. It's been such a pleasure having both of you on the podcast. Please come back and visit us again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. And that's our episode for today. You can follow Ion Markets on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ali Curry. Until next time.